Hello, my name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor of Film Comment. There are many reasons to cry. Sadness, frustration, joy, hormones, or just to get attention. But how movies provoke those feelings and make you cry, while sitting in a theater with strangers no less, aren't so easily compartmentalized. In this episode, I was joined by Michael Koreski, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and author of a feature on Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea in the November-December issue of Film Comment, Shani Enelo, assistant professor of English at Fordham University, and Mark Harris of Vulture. We gathered to discuss two very personal genres of film, films that bring us to tears and sad films that are well-made but don't make us cry. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor. And today I'm joined by Mark Harris, Shani Enelo, Michael Koreski. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, on the occasion of the release of Manchester by the Sea the, by the great Kenneth Lonergan, I'm going to say great, I don't care, <laughs> which is definitely a film like most of his films. Uh, it's about grief. Today we're going to be talking about tearjerkers both in the sense of finely constructed melodramas that we appreciate for their aesthetic value, and then also movies that maybe aren't even that sad, but devastate us. So, Michael, we were talking before, you, you actually wrote that really wonderful feature about Manchester by the Sea in the most recent issue. Uh, I guess, could you talk about, did that film make you cry, or was it sort of more just appreciating the craft of it? It made me cry, but it's also a film that I appreciate the craft of. So I guess mm -hmm. it's one of the, I think the films we're going to talk about today often will cross those lines. Yeah. But Kenneth Lonergan's movies, they feel really unique to me in American cinema. And I think partly that's because we're not getting any sort of full throttle emotional human dramas anymore. Right. So I think that is refreshing. But also I think he's doing something specific with representing grief and sadness that... Um, I don't really see much from the other filmmakers, which is on a structural level, which is that all three of his films so far, You Can Count on Me, Margaret, and Manchester by the Sea, they all have this one horrible thing that's mm -hmm. kind of in the, chart, in the shadows or in the darkness. And all of the plots revolve around this one thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And they're all accidents. Right. And actually, I think that's based on things he's written, that's accidental. <laughs> he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't set out to make movies about accidents. Yeah but they have a, a peculiar effect on the, on the characters and on the structure, which is that um, very unlike he would do in the theater, mm -hmm. he has very, very short scenes, really only a few lines to make a point. It could be a punchline sometimes because yeah. they can be funny, or it can be just one searing, searing point that he makes. And um, he'll just move on to the next thing. And so you get this sense of everything kind of falling into pieces. I think this is definitely the case with Margaret, yeah. for sure. But I, I, I detected it also in Manchester. So it has this accumulative power. And it almost sneaks up on you. He's yeah. also, um, Manchester is the first that's really told a lot of time, too. He's going into the past and the present. Don't know if I want to talk too much about what the terrible event is. Because no. I, I think the movie withholds for a reason. And then yeah. tells it to you right in the midpoint. Um, but I don't know. That's how I felt about it. I don't know. Yeah. I know. I will say uh, uh, to so, someone who saw it and listened to the Toronto podcast, the terrible thing happened. And then they thought, oh, no, is that the only terrible thing that happened? There's only one really terrible thing. That oh, that's happens. true. Like the, the, Disclaimer. Movie is, the movie is framed. <laughs> I, I can say this. The movie yeah. is, Casey Affleck plays this um, janitor um, in, in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I know these towns because I grew up near them, who goes back to Manchester mm -hmm. um, when it, he finds out that his brother has died of a heart attack, his older brother. That's, that's the setup, so it's not really mm -hmm. spoiling anything. Right. So you do think, like, this is what this film's about. This is about the death, coming to terms with the death of a brother, but then you realize that he has to come to terms with something even greater and more horrible in his past. Right. You know, I, I, the movie made me cry, too. I really love Kenneth Lonergan's work. And, and one thing that struck me is that in all of his movies, there are characters in his movies who cry. Some of the most memorable scenes in those movies. I mean, I'm always really moved by when Mark Ruffalo breaks down in a very brief scene in um, You Can Count on Me. And that can really be a trap for filmmakers. Like if you're making a movie, one of the actual subjects of which is grief or mm -hmm. sadness, it can be easy to just 
jump on board the perspective of your character so completely that you don't have any distance from it. And I always think Lonergan finds a beautiful balance. I mean, he's he's a very empathetic filmmaker, but he also knows how to keep his distance. And, you know, his perspective in um, Manchester by the Sea is not the same as Casey Affleck's perspective. He 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 has he gives his room characters to he gives his characters room to feel things that he doesn't necessarily feel about them and that you won't necessarily feel while you're watching his work that's really interesting to me because i guess that suggests that there's something there's like a triangulation going on in these uh emotionally powerful scenes between what the actor's doing what the director's doing and what the audience is doing right there's some you know a lot of these emotional genres, we tend to think of them as creating a vicarious emotion in the audience, right? That that you are crying when the when the character is crying, right? There's some there's some kind of sense of um, vicariousness, or you know, re- even more than identification. I think there's a sense that you know their emotions and my emotions are are taking place on the same register. But what you're suggesting is that maybe what that requires is also you know this like third party, um, you know, be it like the eye of the camera or the hand of the director you know to to triangulate it i don't yeah yeah well well sometimes when i see a movie that i think is supposed to make me cry and doesn't make me cry sometimes i think the reason is the movie is doing my crying for me like if if the movie is too invested in saying oh my god look how sad this is look how sad she is look how awful this is uh, sometimes i think on an emotional level i feel what's left for me like right. the this the movie's relationship to this moment is so complete that it doesn't need me to um, complete it. Right, and there, and and that's why it, it, these things, as we'll discuss, can be so subjective. Something that makes me cry will probably not, or might not, make you guys cry because you wouldn't think that that was the moment that you were supposed to cry. Whereas Manchester by the Sea is a movie that hits these very particular points, and you're, it's pretty clear the moments where you will maybe cry, mm-hmm. right? but it's done in such a way that it doesn't feel overly manipulative. Um, though it, it is, I think one of the debates around the film is, has been the, the music, the choices of music. Yeah. And there is that the, in the central uh, sequence, um, he, for lack of a better term, lays it on thick with um, some Handel and some Bach. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, though there is a lot of music in the film, it stands out from the rest of the film for, I mean, you, yeah. there's actually this organ music at one point. I think he's underlining in a way that you're saying, like this is the moment where you're supposed to feel something, so pay attention. And there's, he so he creates a removal from doing that. But I still think that there's something so intrinsically powerful about what he's showing and Casey Affleck's performance, frankly, yeah. that it breaks through that. So the, there's actually a simultaneous distancing and intimacy of those scenes, which right. I find per, a little perplexing, frankly. You know, I was reading I was reading this article about melodrama and thinking about this after we saw Manchester by the Sea last night by Thomas Elsasser, the, the you yeah, know the yes. early right. Um, is that how you pronounce his last name? Elsasser. Like Elsasser. Okay. Okay. And you know, he had this line that feels really germane to what you're talking about, where he he says that in melodrama, the rhythm of the film is different, or the rhythm of the experience is different from the morals or ideas of the experience, right? Mm-hmm. So that that often music actually often works um, to create like a, a an emotional life that's going on separate from the from the from the ideas or the content of the film so there is this simultaneous distance even as you know your emotions are being activated along with the the content there is like a at least in his theory there is a, a kind of distance created by this disconnect between the rhythm or the sound of the film and the um, I think when he says rhythm what he means actually is uh, uh, musicality did you feel a distancing yeah. effect in that film? And what was your emotional response, yeah. your natural response to the film? The film did not make me cry. I liked it. I was moved by it, but it didn't It didn't make me cry. It's really interesting. I actually feel like I am a... Most of the time when I cry in a film, it's films that I don't actually think are good or are like <laughs> important works of art. Like there's something about letting... When I can let go of my intellectual interest in the film, like that's when I find myself crying mm-hmm. most strongly. So like, for instance, you know, the, the, the film that I was thinking about uh, for the purposes of this podcast was actually the film version of Les Mis, which I think is a terrible film um, and is, is, you know, barely a film in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, <laughs> but, it, you know, I, if I hear, I, I was just watching YouTube clips of those songs and I was crying, you know? So there's something for me about letting go, actually, of my aesthetic sense and, and intellectual interests that allows me to 
go there emotionally. But that's maybe getting ahead of ourselves. No, in this no, conversation. No. I mean, I think I think it's completely fair to say. I mean, first of all, the the measure of the quality of a movie is not necessarily whether it makes you cry or not. You can no. be extremely moved by things that just don't trigger that response in you. And also, there are absolutely cheap tears and earned tears and. I kind of think both are okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can look at Les Mis and, like, who is anyone to say, no, I'm sorry, that shouldn't work for you because Tom Hooper's use of close-ups is jarring and distracting. Like, if it makes you cry, it makes you cry. Um, but, I mean, maybe there's a line between tear-jerkers and tear-stealers. Like, the, <laughs> the, the, because yes. the, the, there is something like a, a movie that can kind of sneak into your system and subtly extract tears from you when you don't expect that you're going to cry is sometimes a really powerful crying experience, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, that was sort of what Manchester was for me because it was like uh, the big moment was shocking, but it didn't make me cry. And then, I mean, for all the discourse around this that it's like, oh, well, it's this very specific type of male masculinity and white and Boston and da 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 like, and all these things where it's like, it's the, the specificity of the film is sort of being used as a criticism of it almost. Um, but for me, I totally completely related to it because I saw, you know, people in my own family who are about as different from those characters as you could possibly get. And like, there are moments where I didn't even know that I was like at the beginning of a scene, I didn't know I was going to cry and it just, just, I was bawling. Like I could barely keep it together. So, and then that's, I mean, and I think that's the power of good art is that, you know, it's sort of, it can sneak up on you. But. It creates that sense of pure empathy. Yes. Somebody you may not have, I mean, the film establishes that character as fairly unlikable. There's, yeah. there's a potential gay bash that happens at the beginning of that right. film. It's left ambiguous, which is very interesting. In, in, in the beginning of the film, when he's at his lowest moment, we're not sure why he's at his lowest moment, but he's at a bar and he... he well, who's he, even he, to say that's the lowest moment even? He's at a, <laughs> a low moment as, that we see. Yes. Yeah, right. And um, he sees these two men talking to each other across the bar and something about them makes him angry. Yeah. And there are a lot of, you know, socio-political reasons why that could be the case. And it mm-hmm. it is very resonant, I think. And um, there's obviously a lot of, um, he has a lot of pent-up anger and resentments about a lot of things and other people's lives compared to his own. Um, but it's kind of just left there. Yeah. And so he, after that, and then a few other instances where he's less than polite to other people, it then asks for you to completely identify with him mm-hmm. and understand where he's coming from. And I, I, I do find that gesture gen- generally moving yeah. Also, Manchester by the Sea is funny, and I yes. think we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which that can be a really effective weapon in a movie that also wants to make you cry. That mm-hmm. that that sometimes a movie that comes at you barreling down the middle of the highway, saying this is going to be sad and awful and wrenching, is not necessarily as effective as a movie that sneaks through a side door. And I mean, I always think of Terms of Endearment. I remember reading a review of it when it came out that it may have been Andrew Saris who said, this is nothing but a sitcom that's interrupted by cancer. And I thought, what a good idea. Like yeah. that is an unbelievably effective yeah. tactic to to say that sorrow is something that interrupts yeah happiness um that that tragedy is something that interrupts comedy uh, so so for me the i tend to be susceptible to stuff like that mm-hmm. well and if that's done well then it actually feels sort of radical in a way terms of endearment actually is a film that holds up extremely well i think that there's an amazing intimacy between the two women who of, of that the mother daughter shirley mclean and deborah winger and there's something so idiosyncratic about the way James Brooks writes those characters and devotes time to them. And that, I don't know when, and it, yeah, it feels like a comedy for but when the tragedy sneaks up, it, it feels so lived in, like you've really been with these people that it never, it doesn't feel rude to me. It didn't right. feel like a rude Also, awakening. I always thought it was incredibly effective and shrewd. Like if you believe in movies where uh, the first scene is supposed to be a thesis statement, the first scene of Terms of Endearment is Shirley MacLaine as a young mother uh, looking at her baby who grows up to be Deborah Winger in her crib and wondering if the baby's dead or not. And like, you 
jarring the baby until she cries and then being very happy and going back to sleep because she knows her baby's fine. So like the first scene is somebody deciding to make somebody else cry. Mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty effective like preview of what's to come, you know, in the rest of the movie. And almost crawling into the crib with the right. child, which which is right. a great image. Yeah. That the mother is, is, is she almost disappears into the crib, the top part of her body. I think there's a lesson in that movie and that so many people dismissed it as like, it's, it's uh, TV. It's not cinema. It's just a sitcom. It's, it's not a real movie. And, you know, almost 35 years later, that movie still works. You know, there's a lot to be said for writing and performance as, as two elements that can keep a movie uh, alive for people for longer than you might think. Well, and Manchester by the sea has had a little bit of that criticism, uh, I think cinephiles especially have an idea of what cinema is supposed to be. And Manchester by the Sea has a very serviceable, it's, I think it's wonderfully and elegantly artfully made, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't show off its aesthetics. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that just shows you enough of what it wants to show you. I think there's some really deft editing. I think there's some really beautiful choices made, but he, he kind of sticks to the script as it were. And um, so that, so people say, well, Moonlight's real cinema, Manchester by the Sea is just good writing or just good performances. It's, it's, I mean, that's always going to be a conversation amongst cinephiles, I guess. Comparing those films actually is really interesting, going back to our conversation about music, right, and the ways that they both use classical music, which I find really like fascinating too, in, in ways that are, I guess, somewhat unexpected, although also conform to certain like genre characteristics of, of genre. I just want to talk more. I like. I want to talk more about music because I think it's so. It's so. It's so interesting in such an important way that 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 Manchester by the Sea, in particular, yeah. you know, lets us know that there's emotion going on that is like nonverbal, can't right. be spoken. Right? Is is um, beyond words or even beyond performance, even beyond representation in some way. Yeah. Because I mean, when I was in film school, I remember a teacher telling us like. And we, because someone did this and it was a perfect example where it's like, you have to be really careful when you put in music because songs, especially like, even if it's not a pop song, people have all sorts of associations with it that you can't control. Like when you introduce that, unless it's like original music, you can't control those associations. So in this class, someone put in, he did a video about suburban sprawl, let's say. And he used uh, the postal service, some, some song by the postal service. And people were like, what are you, what? Like I, and it's like, well, I think of this when I hear that song, I think of that. And it was like, it was completely all over the place. Like the emotional reactions, like what he was going for was completely lost by this very, what would seem like a simple element that t- would tie to tie the short together, but be careful. <laughs> but I guess maybe now we could turn over to uh, things that we respect, melodramas that we respect. But which do not make but, us cry. Yeah, yeah. Purely scientific. <laughs> I, I, this is so hard to talk about yeah. because I was thinking it's like comedy or horror or porn. Like <laughs> what works for you right. works for yeah, you. And, yeah. and there's sort of no judgment right, about what right. works for someone else and what might not work for you. I mean, one thing I was thinking about earlier is that there's a large, and I think a lot of it has to do with personal experience. Like there's a large category of movie that as I think known as the male weepy, um, <laughs> that does not make me cry. Like very rarely does any kind of, sports comeback movie make me cry and I have this big empty spot where my tears are supposed to go for any movie that's like my dad and I never had a real relationship and he was always really mean and crusty to me but I know he loved me because of that one time he looked at me that way like (laughs) I I just and there's a lot of those movies yeah And, and I watch them and it's not like I hate them or I think this is phony. I just sit there kind of blankly and think, "Uh uh-huh. And I think part of the reason for that is I had a very complicated relationship with my father who died when I was young. And so for me, it's like, it's too close. It's like, yeah, I get it. Um, But you're not going to get to me that way. Whereas the stuff that does make me cry is more sidelong and sometimes weird. Although sometimes it's right on the nose. Mm -hmm. Like what? So is there a particular yeah. film? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, 
I, I feel like I should match your Les Mis confession <laughs> by saying that um, the last scene of fame has always really done it oh for me. Oh, my God. Um, yes. Uh, yes. You know, I sing the body electric. You know, I, I make no apologies. And maybe you'll even cut this part. No. But, uh, no. Uh, one movie I wanted to talk about was Ordinary People because – that movie is always so maligned and it kind of in cinephile history, it's the movie that stole raging bulls Oscar and is the definition of kind of manicured, polished, polite cinema, Robert Redford and nice, uh, wasps on the North shore of Chicago. And I saw this movie when I was a teenager, um, and it made me cry. And then I went back to see it again and it made me cry and it's made me cry every time since. And it could not have been further from my, experience. I mean, my brother is alive and well. I grew up in a family of like Jews and Catholics, not wasps. Mary Tyler Moore was not my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it took me years to figure out what was getting to me about this movie. And not until I was an, an adult and started talking to other people who also loved the movie did I realize that for me, this was an encoded gay story. This was a story about a teenager in a family who knew that he was not the son his parents wanted and was just kind of desperately sad and trying to figure out how to connect with them and trying to figure out what his future was going to be. And that the the dead son, the dead perfect son in that movie was, it felt to me like a metaphor for my own experience. And I think that's far, far from the intent of ordinary people, but it worked on me because it snuck in through a door that I didn't know was in me and available. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes movies can work on people in ways that they don't even imagine they will. Just to jump off from that, I think the exact same thing is happening with Dead Poet Society, which is not a film that I was expecting to talk about today that I I have watched a lot since I was, or haven't recently, but I had watched a lot as a child and it always made me cry. It's very, it's like a kind of like a perfect tearjerker in a way. It pushes all the right buttons. But what it's doing is very similar. It's clearly a a movie about a young uh, gay man whose parents reject him and he commits suicide though it's all coded. So it's about theater. It's about, um, it's not really even about femininity, even though the actor is a little more feminine than the other, Robert Sean Leonard's character is a little more feminine than the other boys. He's coming into his own as an imaginative, thoughtful, creative person. His father rejects him, says he has to be more of a man and he kills himself. It's clearly a gay story that no one talks about as a gay story. And I, I don't understand that, but it's an, it's an interesting coded film. That's really interesting. I really like the idea that, that something like sneaks in through a different door and, you know, hooks into like, you know, semi-repressed conflicts, right, that you have. I mean, that's like, I was thinking about why films about revolt or resistance or revolution, you know, often which are extremely sentimental and melodramatic and work through the most simplified worldviews of what political action is and what it means to be a part of a collective work on me so completely. I mean, I think that it has something to do, it does have something to do with my desires to intellectually distance myself from my overwhelming emotional response to injustice in the world, you know, yeah. like where, where I, you know, I think I spend a lot of time trying to abstract, obviously I'm an academic, so I do <laughs> try to try to understand history in like a more complicated way, but something about the revolution melodrama hooks into all my desires for collective transcendence and all my, you know, <laughs> feelings of about, you know, the suffering of the world in this way that's like really intense for me. So what are some of those films that made, oh my gosh. made you cry? So, you know, it's actually so many. And as I started like going through them, a lo- anything about the Irish Troubles, <laughs> like I'm there, <laughs> I'm there, I'm weeping, you know. Uh, so, right. So I, so I, I rewatched Michael Collins to think about that, which is actually not as much of a tearjerker as I'd remembered it, interestingly enough. But that whole genre of film, um, obviously lame as, oh, most recently Suffragette made me cry completely, <laughs> even though, you know, I didn't even particularly enjoy the film and it made me cry. You know, I, I was watching it with my mother and just started feeling, you know, all the feels about uh. women and, you know, the failures of, <laughs> of um, you know, collective action. And I just completely started to cry. I was trying to think about this. 
the movies that make us cry are articulating some kind of conflict that we have that we are wrestling with in some con some kind of subconscious or unconscious level. For me, that's actually not a domestic space. I feel like relatively unconflicted about my childhood or domestic life, but I feel very conflicted about you know, my political life or, or mm. what it means to be a political person. And so mm. that's where, for me, all those feelings get activated. Yeah, I think that's a great point that something unresolved in you is yeah. maybe more likely to make you cry than, than something that's really resolved. Because, like, I really love old-fashioned melodramas. I mean, yeah. Stella Dallas, yes. Mildred Pierce, Imitation of Life, Annie Douglas Sirk. But none of them make me cry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I like deeply appreciate them and enjoy them no less for not crying. But they don't trigger anything in me that relates to my own life or something that I'm struggling with. And probably, I mean, with rare cases, like West Side Story makes me cry. But other than that, most things that make me cry probably are at least 50% me rather than the movie, yeah. you know, it, it has to connect with something that goes to a place of pain or uncertainty or deep, deep emotion. Yeah. It's funny how everyone can have a different response to things. For, for me, this is similar to what you're saying, but for me, it's, um, it's, it's more like utopias. Mm. Once things have, however falsely, however false this is in terms of history, once things have been overcome and a film retrospectively looks back at some, someone or something that has overcome great odds, that's when I get uncontrollably, joyfully sad. Mm -hmm. um, so I almost always cry more at, from feeling overwhelming cathartic happiness than from sadness. And I don't know if I'm going to talk about the films <laughs> yet, but I mean, the, the movies, the two movies I think that make me cry the most in the world, and I'm talking, and these are films that I've watched from a young age, and every single time I watch them, it gets no easier. They're both movies with happy endings, but they're The Color Purple and It's a Wonderful Life. I have such a strong response to those films, films with almost um, a perversely happy endings, grotesquely happy endings, mm -hmm. where you've been looking at really terrible, on the edge of the abyss things for two hours plus, and there's some amazing turnaround and you have this sense that the world is a good place after all. Mm. That is like, I get chills, I cry. I, I think, if I think, can think the world is possibly a good place after all, that's going to get the emotional response. If something is just unremittingly sad, yeah. um, I kind of, I, I feel despair, and I don't cry from despair. I actually think that my whole, like, revolution thing is, is the same, right? That there's this moment of hope or, you know, that, that people are going to come together and everything's going to be in some way redeemed by a, a sense of community. Or I, I think it's very similar, actually, is that there is a hope, you know, however completely, ultimately bankrupt, if we think about it intellectually, right? That there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to be said about in, in critique of these films that, that offer us this, you know, false promise of happiness, of course. But, but I, I agree. I have, I have the same... We need those. We need those yeah. false promises of happiness. I mean, how do we how do we go on? Sometimes I'll cry in a movie toward the end, almost at a random spot, and I'll realize that it's just because the movie has so successfully grabbed me. Like I've so completely bought into it, both in terms of narrative and emotion, that it wouldn't take much to like a strange place I cried in a movie recently was in Spotlight the day after. The, the morning the big story appears when the two guys just walk into the empty newsroom to kind of see what's going on and, and wait for the phone to start ringing. It wasn't like a moment of triumph or anything. It was a moment that I just so deeply connected to as a journalist in terms of writing something and hoping that it's read and hoping mm -hmm. that it's noticed and hoping that it's received. Like sometimes I will cry at something just because it is that real to me, mm -hmm. you know, that, that believable to me. Even if it's preposterous, like I cry, in, I cry in the moment in the Truman Show where the first time I saw it, where Jim Carrey gets to the edge of the water and touches the sky and realizes that it's made of canvas. That was a sort of joyful cry because it was like, oh, you, you found the perfect realization for the idea that you've been trying to express in this movie. I think that that brings up a good point, too, because I, I also, I, I, I loved The Truman Show when I first saw it. It's been a while since I saw it, and, and that, that scene is so powerful. But I also think that there's, um, 
a whole other realm of things that can make us cry, which is just the sheer power of the image. You know, this can be about any art, but with cinema, especially if you have that perfect marriage of everything, you know, uh, a great allegorical image, performance, music, framing. That was a moment where I felt like you know, Peter Weir, the director of the film, just found like the perfect distillation of what he was trying to say. I love that image of the boat hitting the wall. Right, that's oh, what I'm thinking great. of. It's a great political statement. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Um, and I do remember Philip Glass coming on the soundtrack, and mm. it really works on you. It's definitely, I think it's intended to make you cry. Uh, I don't know if it worked for everyone, but I, it all kind of comes together. There's like the elements coming together. Maybe we can switch to films that don't make us cry, but we greatly respect. Individual films? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I thought long and hard about this because there are a lot. I mean, there are a lot of great, and I'm kind of that way with Cirque, like you mentioned, Mark, though Imitation of Life does definitely make me cry. Yeah. All That Heaven Allows um, is a movie that I just I could watch a- any day, but there's something kind of patently ridiculous about it, so I'm able to kind of stand apart from it and, and just appreciate it. But then I, um, I realized that one of my favorite films of all time is a melodrama that everybody says makes them cry, but it never does, which is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I mean, I think there are probably obvious reasons why it's extremely stylized. You're watching performers who actually aren't even singing and the whole thing is sung. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're experiencing in this completely mediated way where Catherine Deneuve is on screen all the time and she's singing the whole time, but she's not actually singing. So the emotions aren't quite connecting with the actor. And um, you're, you're so ad- admiring of the colors and the framing that it, it, it creates a distancing effect. But I think ultimately... I realized that I almost never cry at musicals, which is quite the opposite of what you were saying, Shani, with, with Les Mis, and what you were saying with fame, Mark. I don't know what it is, but musicals, as, as much as I absolutely adore the genre when done well, which is rare, I cannot get past the stylization of it. And, and the end of Umbrellas of Cherbourg is one of my favorite endings of any movie in history, but I, and I feel the power of the imagery, the scene in the gas station when the lovers see each other again in part ways. But it's, it's very academic for me. I'm not sure why. And I absolutely love that film. That's really interesting because I, as you're talking, I'm realizing that I've cried at many musicals on stage mm-hmm. and almost none on film. And it's not because I think film musicals aren't successful. I mean, I love the umbrellas of... Sherbrooke as much as anybody and it doesn't work less for me because I don't cry in it but I don't cry in it but I can think of tons of shows like just in the last couple of years that I've seen live and cried at so so maybe in in a live theater I can suspend my distance from the stylization of a musical more than I can in a movie it is interesting with a musical is it's supposed to be so forthrightly purely emotional and then because that's what the genre asks for or demands, I, I guess I'm resistant to it. I don't know. Oh, that's so interesting. I feel exactly the opposite. I mean, I could just, I could just like think about, you know, songs from movie musicals and start to cry. Always cry in Gypsy, even though that's, you know, that's like a, I, you know, that's a film that has so much irony and self-consciousness. And of course it's a musical that has so much self-consciousness that you would think that that, that would be somewhat more distant, say, than just like the transparent tear ceiling of Les Mis. But for me, I, and I, I really do think it's about what happens. I imagine myself singing the song. There's an embodied identification that I go through when I, when I watch people singing that I feel totally overtaken mm. by the emotion of the performer of the song. There's like a pure vicarity that I feel when I... Maybe it, maybe it is because I was an actor and, and so I have like that no, experience. No, I understand that. that. I, 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 I actually have a similar response, but it doesn't, it doesn't elicit tears or yeah. that much of an emotional response. Yeah. It, I actually think, well, it would be great to have that kind of emotion. It's almost more that. It's like mm. I wish I could feel what that person's feeling right now. Oh, interesting. Though I, though, though there is one. I just thought of one, of one sequence that makes me cry in a musical, but it's very <laughs> unlike anything else, which is Tomorrow Belongs to Me from Cabaret. <laughs> Uh, from Cabaret, which I suppose is very relevant right now considering what's going on in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think I would probably have even more of an emotional response to it now. But that's that's almost like a a chill, uh, chilling tears, I guess is one way of calling (laughs) it. In case people don't know who are listening, that sequence is um, in Cabaret. It's, It's when they go to this German... It's like it's like it's like this basically this uh, f- 
on a farm or where do it's they go? It's in the German countryside. It's like Somewhere. a pub. It's like a beer garden. Oh, right. It's, it's like, a beer it's garden. A beer garden. Yeah. And this young Aryan, beautiful Aryan youth stands up and sings Tomorrow Belongs to Me. And, and one by one, everyone in the audience starts to stand up and sing with him. And the song is obviously like a recruitment tool for the Nazi party. Extremely powerful image and affected me greatly at a young age. It's one of those great scenes you get no matter what age you're at. It's like perfect allegory that leaves me a mess every time I see it but that's very different from any other musical sequence Mm. well it is and it isn't though right because there's something about the movie musical I think that allows you or even requires you to suspend its ideology for the you know emotional force of its ideology that happens more often. I mean, that's how I feel about Les Mis. You know, like I, I feel like its politics are completely reprehensible, actually. You know, like I think it's totally wrong. But I'm like able to suspend that for this sort of pure state of feeling, you know, which is actually really dark, of course, because those are the feelings that can be hooked into and, and manipulated very easily towards particular ideological ends. You know, once you get people out of thinking about what they're actually feeling and just into that pure state of communal uh, emotion. So movies that are melodramas that that don't make me cry, right? I mean, there are, there are sort of the obvious that I thought of, right? Like Todd Haynes, I love, but doesn't make me cry. Fassbender, I really love. And some of Fassbender's films, actually, I cry in. Like, I, I definitely cried in Ali, mm. Fairies of Soul. But I do not cry. I did not cry in The Marriage of Maria Braun. I do not cry in Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Um, and I do not cry in Veronica. Like, a lot of them I, I don't cry in, even though I think they're very well made. And I, I, I guess I think it, for me, it actually has to do with irony, which I really enjoy and the works of art that I feel actually most love for have in them, in, in our, you know, take some kind of ironic or slightly camp pose. That's what I love the most, but it doesn't, it, for that reason, I'm thinking and I'm enjoying the experience of thinking rather than giving myself over to some kind of powerful feeling. So ultimately, like, I would rather not sit down and watch Les Mis right now, but if you put me in front of the TV, you know, I will cry. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, but We happen to have right. it right here. <laughs> <laughs> I would, but, and I'd much rather watch, you know, Married to Maria Broad right now, but I, it's more pleasure. I guess what I'm saying is actually for me, crying is not always pleasurable. Like I'm not always crying no. because the movie is causing me pleasure. You know, it's not, it's not, yeah. it's not because I'm enjoying the movie in particular. Because <laughs> I know people who are like, oh, I love to watch a movie to make me cry. Like listen to a song. Yeah. If you need to get it out of your system, that's so much more of an efficient way to get, <laughs> to get rid of those feelings. But I was going to say Fassbender is also for me, someone I can, utterly respect especially like the you know the films that he made after sort of mainlining a bunch of Cirque really amazing um but specifically I Only Want You to Love Me is such a it's weird because it's like it goes so deep inside of me that I can't even cry it's like there are these like tectonic plates where it's like I see everyone I've ever known working so hard and just being manipulated by capitalism. <laughs> like really, like, like that's what that, that film is entirely about and just being done wrong by this completely absurd system. And it's just, I, it like paralyzes me and I can't even put into words how I feel. Like it's just like utter devastation. And I think because I am just so devastated, I feel defeated and I can't even bring myself to cry because <laughs> it's just... Yeah, but. I had just been digging into Fox and his friends again. And... I had a similar response. I mean, it's 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 so bleak that it becomes funny almost, and it, yeah. it, it, it's absurd. And I don't think that's the case with with all of his films. It's not, but mm-hmm. but there there are a handful of his movies where the situation becomes just so completely ridiculous. Well, also, and the, people people kind of dig their own holes. Well, so also, it's hard I think to feel for them sometimes. I think I also get caught up in the injustice that the films that are picking at because it's like the hypocrisy that's going on in Fox and his friends, it still goes on. Like we see this, like the, in certain aspects of gay culture, you still see that sort of thing happening. And just, and then like, um, you know, Ali, you still see that injustice happening. And you, and, and um, you, I only want you to love you. You definitely still see that, that problem going on and it's feeling downtrodden, but you're also feeling angry and sort of activated by well, he it. He was certainly never diagnosing a problem that could no. be solved. No, He was no. just, I mean, he, he felt very low about the human race. Yeah. And, it's, and, and that's, 
I, and like you say, it's it's despair. It's inside you. It's part of us. It's so part of us, and it's so part of the human race that it doesn't it, it, that it doesn't transcend anything. Yeah. And it's always the transcendence, I guess, that really that gets to me. And mm-hmm. as much as I adore those movies, right? It, like I've never cried at a Fassbender movie, and and I'm interested listening to you guys talk about it because for me, like tough-minded pessimism yeah. about the human condition is something that generally will not make me cry mm-hmm. although i can completely invest in it and admire it as an approach to storytelling yeah do you think it's because we're just much more comfortable with pessimism and some cynicism in our contemporary world than we are with uh, you know unabashed hope and optimism like i don't think that that is true of people in every historical moment right, right like yeah. i think thinking about discourses around 19th century melodramas, for instance, right? It's, I'm not sure that it's optimism that uh, is, is um, thinking about like the, like when the genre is thought of as being founded with like a novel like Clarissa or something, which is just about the, it's, it's pure bleakness, right? Like she gets abused and abused and abused and she suffers and she suffers and she suffers. And that was, you know, this supposedly this very emotional experience for people to undergo her degradation, right? But what I hear you guys saying is that bleakness or pessimism doesn't evoke the same kind of vicariousness or doesn't make us, but, does it, we don't feel conflicted about our pessimism. I don't know. But isn't that a question it. of audience too? Because yeah. who are the, who is the audience for these novels, right? right? Like it was, it was not like the people who were actually undergoing that sort of suffering because they were like illiterate, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's sort of like middle class and up, right? Right, but Clarissa is a middle class character. I mean, that's Clarissa is sort of a bourgeois character. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's like a whole. I mean, this but is I mean, part like of the, the thing the, of the, the genre, material so, conditions. Yeah. The material conditions of the, that audience's life are good, or or could right. essentially be pretty good. Right. You know what I mean? So is there something about like we? I, I actually did want to bring up class because yeah. I think you know there's something about well um, Stella Dallas is like such a right. grotesque. Stoldellos does not make you cry, but it definitely, when she's looking through the window of the church at her daughter, I'm just like, I'm dead. I'm I, gone. I, I love that. It just doesn't make me cry. Oh, God. I it's, mean, it's, I mean, it's completely ridiculous because it's like, just buy new clothes. Like, shut up. Like, just learn how to, like, not talk. Like, be so crass and just, like, buy new clothes. But she can't do it. She can't do it. And then she has to, like, lose her daughter because of this, you know? And um, yeah, I don't know. What were you going to say about class? I wonder if there's something about working class characters that we feel more um, inclined to cry over. I was just wondering. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I am always kind of embarrassed when I cry in a movie. Yeah. And yeah. I think I kind of want to be embarrassed when I cry in a movie. Like if you throw a movie at me and the point of the movie is everything sucks and nothing is going to change because that's the human condition – I'm not going to cry because, first of all, I don't believe that. And mm-hmm. second, that's what you want from me. Like, <laughs> I, I, that, that statement might be angry. It, it, it might make me feel angry. It might make me feel despair. I don't think it'll make me cry. Movies that make me cry are movies that, like, you know how people will say, it got to me? Yeah. It, implicit in it got to me is kind of, I didn't expect it to get to me, but it got to me. This one got under my skin. This one hit some nerve in me. And I like that crying is a as much a deeply personal response to something inside of you as it is an intended reaction to something that the movie is doing. Maybe for me it's more the first thing than the second thing. And so sort of stern, sad prognoses of the human condition or of the endless inequities of class or of the deep unfairness of things. Sometimes that will make me cry in a documentary. It very rarely makes me cry in a fictional narrative. But it's interesting hearing the different films that we're talking about that make us cry. And to answer the, the question, you sort, you sort of pose Shawnee as class-based. It's, it seems like it does transcend those things. It depends on the individual situation. Ordinary People is obviously a movie about privileged, wealthy suburbanites. The Color Purple is not. The color purple is about poor post reconstruction black people in the south, so I it it really depends, and they seem to be different responses, right? It's all yeah. about how people function within their worlds, within right. their class structures, right. and they're all about these movies are all about class. These, right. It's Wonderful Life is certainly about class and money. Yeah, that's interesting in and of itself, right? That they all seem to be in some ways about class. 
I, th- I mean, most good movies are, right? Yeah. Um, one would say. Knights or, of I don't Kiberia. Know, or maybe we read into them that way as, yeah. as critics, but... Right. right, Knights of Kiberia, of which, course. Which is a movie I was going to say that always devastates me at the end because, I mean, it's like she's this tough little cookie. She's, you know, she's scraping by. She doesn't care. And then she allows herself to believe in something and she gets completely screwed over. But at the end, she still has, like this beautiful moment of hope because someone had the decency to say, you know, to greet her. And I don't know. It's like, I'm getting upset right now. (laughs) I think (laughs) the end of Knights of Kiberia is the perfect distillation of the type of film that makes me cry. It's, Mm -hmm. it's about overcoming in the tiniest, tiniest way. And that, and that is just like the shred of decency that one person can show another. Yeah. And that smile that smile on the face of <sighs> tragedy, that marching on towards the camera, knowing that everything will always be fucking terrible, but you're going to keep on trying to find that shred of decency. Yeah. That's I guess what, what yeah. does it. I guess what I'm like, what I'm interested in though, you didn't finish the sentence, overcoming what, right? Like what, what is it that these characters are overcoming that's so emotional? It's always something different. Is it? It's not. Well, in the case of, okay, so yeah. let's I talk mean, about the yeah. color, okay. if you don't mind. Let's yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. the color purple, <laughs> which I find a fascinating movie. It's the kind of movie that has to be taken out of its context in a way of when yeah. it was made, of what all the controversies around it, all the controversies about Steven Spielberg being the person who made it and how he wasn't, she shouldn't have been, or he was not the right person to make it in 1985 in Hollywood or whatever, that it wasn't gay enough, that it wasn't black enough, that it wasn't this or that enough. Yeah. It exists on its own. It's continued to inspire and move people, including myself, <laughs> for many, many years. So what is it that does work? Yeah. And that's much more interesting than what doesn't work, with the, I think, with The Color Purple. So in that case, what is it that I'm responding to? I'm, res- I'm Seely as a character that I want to keep going back to. I love the book. I love the musical on Broadway. And I love the movie. So I clearly really want to protect this character identify in a way with this character and it's interesting you said also violet you don't people you don't understand people who want to go back and have a cathartic experience with a film that's that is actually how i feel about that film i actually watch the color purple once a year once every two years to kind of like work out my emotions (laughs) because i know it's going to work it's just going to work on me so but yeah so what what is it that i get out of that like i've said before the sense that no matter how hard things get, and this is about a character who was raped by her father, whose children were taken away from her, who marries an abusive man and is forced to live with him for years, who slowly realizes that she's a lesbian, though that doesn't really work out either, and is basically within a completely marginalized community of people who are cut off from the rest of the world and considered less than human. How on earth could she find any shred of decency or sense of herself? And yet she does in her own little way. And it makes me realize that everybody's life is its own its own pocket of the world. And she has the remarkable ending, the fact that she finds happiness through the help of many other people just restores my faith, even if it's for two hours, two and a half hours. It restores my faith that it's possible that happiness can be found in the most degraded situations because people can love each other. It sounds sentimental, (laughs) but it's true. There's nothing wrong with sentimentality. There's nothing wrong with sentiment. And also, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting that you're talking about Knights of Kiberia and The Color Purple because they're both that thing, which does really get to me too, is the idea that identity and a sense of self can survive immense cruelty. Yeah. Um, that monstrosity can be inflicted upon you. And then you, as a blade of grass, will poke through i mean in the stage musical version of the color purple there's this climactic song called i'm here which is like as simple as a statement of where Seely has come in that in that story uh, and it like devastates me every time i hear it because it's it's just like this incredibly simple of assertion of survival against unbelievable oppression and, and cruelty and yeah that stuff does always get to me i see skepticism (laughs) no i just i just find it really interesting i mean i i feel i feel like throughout this conversation like i have a very very different sense of i i just have very very different uh things that i respond to you know emotionally and but i think part of it is that i have trained myself i think or i have been trained both are possible to be totally critical of that 
right? Like of that idea that, you know, of the individual triumphing over her horrible circumstances mm. by, you know, sheer force of will and, and, and love, right? Like that is the sentimental idea that I feel the most resistance towards. You know, right. I feel like it's really pernicious and bad. But because, it, it, because it ends a conversation, perhaps, yeah, right? Yeah, well, yeah because, it, because it's about exceptionalism, right? It's about mm-hmm. an exceptional individual, you know, being able, you Bootstraps. know. Bootstraps. Yeah, in a way, <laughs> but, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, and it encodes all these ideologies that are so ingrained in American culture that I think are totally get us away from all but it's, well, not, but it's not just an American culture. This is certainly yeah. one of the interesting things that with The Color Purple that Spielberg was doing was he was directly referencing Dickens. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that was in Alice Walker's book right, or right. in any of the other versions of right. it. Uh, her sister teaches her to read and they, they read using Oliver Twist. And so the, the film is constantly kind of aligning her with this literary tradition. And, and there actually is a whole great expectations aspect to the story, which is that she eventually comes into an inheritance. And it's certainly knowing, and it's part of a tradition. And, yeah. and then he's visually playing off of David Lean and John Ford, but he's kind of recapturing them mm-hmm. with, from a completely different perspective. Like if you're looking at a, a low angle against the beautiful you know, horizon, and it's Whoopi Goldberg, it's very, very different. Yeah. than if it's John Wayne. Mm-hmm. So sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, yeah. Yeah. it's not a thoughtless exercise yeah. in sentimentality. When we're talking about Knights of Cabiria, when we're talking about The Color Purple, that's something very different. Like, I think, you know, what you're identifying, this pernicious ideologies that these narratives sometimes embody, like the blind side, like films like that, where it's very, like that exceptionalism is just shoved in your face and it's very cheap. And it's like, well, aren't you so glad that there are good white people out there in the world? You know, like these terrible, these not good. Oh, that's I, a whole other, that's I a mean, whole, that's whole, a whole other genre. That's yeah. a whole other genre. Yeah. And so it's like these two films in particular are sort of outliers in that respect because it, people who are marginalized for whatever reason that are, it's not like. Kabiria is the CEO of some bank now. It's like she just barely scrapes by. And the same with Seeley. It's it's like it's surviving on your own terms. It's not like it's not a Horatio Elgator but, story. But, but with yeah, with I'm sorry, yeah, yeah with with Seeley, it, it, it's a, it's her own personal tiny triumph. Exactly. Yeah. It's, she doesn't end up you know a billionaire. Exactly. <laughs> she ends up getting to see her sister again. I think That's you can also moving. say that like if anyone were to say to you. Michael, the the message of the color purple is that no matter how much the odds are stacked against you, if you're strong enough and persistent enough, you can triumph. I think you would say no. And and that that is a pernicious application of exceptionalist ideology to this movie. But sometimes you can cry at something that you wish were true. Oh, totally. Even if you you know intellectually it's not. And and I don't think that's an unfair cry. And also like, I mean, we've all come up with really good, interesting reasons why we cry. But I just want to say, like, I cried at Creed when the Rocky music came on. Yeah. So I'm like a dumb animal like anyone else, you know. <laughs> like, the, sometimes something will just, like, hit you because, you know, you were a kid and now you're not. And right. that will be enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Movies are designed to create these Pavlovian responses. Right. right. Yeah. And so I guess we can trust that or not trust that. But that's an interesting point also because one thing we didn't really talk about is how much um, just this, this, this sense of recognition plays into, into when you cry, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's something that hits certain points from your past or yeah. whether it's from repetition. Yeah. I, I know I'll, I'll cry at things before they happen because I know they're coming in a movie. Because <laughs> yeah. I've seen the movie right. so many times mm-hmm. that I'm conditioned to right. expect certain things and that I know that, oh, these are the things that make me cry. It's almost like this act of self, self-definition. Do you know this... Mm. Gilda Radner joke from her Broadway show in 1980 where she plays Lisa Lubner, her adenoidal, lonely little girl character. And she says, I saw the way we were four times and I cried five times because <laughs> the fourth time I saw it, I cried while I was on the bus on the way to see it because I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that's okay, yeah. and uh, not to make everything about the color purple, but <laughs> if I hear the music yeah. outside of the film, I just start to cry because mm-hmm. it brings up all these images and, yeah. and, and, and my own childhood to a certain yeah. extent. I feel like when you watch a, a very emotional film when you're young, it teaches you a certain way about thinking of the world. I think that could be healthy or unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But in that case, there's a, there's a certain um, strong empathy that I think that maybe, maybe taught me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see the comments on this podcast. It's going to be like, you're all babies. Uh, well, I mean, I actually, no, it, I, I think they're, they're... I think it's brave to say what makes you cry. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but I'm realizing, actually I'm just realizing like even in that 
that of course there's something very gendered, you know, about this, totally. about like what, you know, what we allow ourselves to cry in, mm -hmm. you know, I feel very, very conscious of the whole, you know, cultural trope around like the sacred tears of the white woman, you know, and yeah. like trying to resist that models of sentimentality that, so I just wanted to, I just want to get that in there that, that, you know, I feel very conscious of the politics of my own tears and even when, yeah. and, 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 and I feel like they, that actually does affect what I allow myself to give, what I give myself over to, what I allow myself to, to release myself towards, you yeah. know, versus what I don't. Cause I mean, that's why I said like, I'm very like skeptical of the, or I don't do the thing where it's like, I'm going to watch this in order to cry. Cause it's just like, like it's, it's that it's a, just what you said. Like, it's just, I mean, now they really don't make like Hollywood has just completely lost any interest in really trying to get women to watch movies. But like for so long, it was like, you know, romantic comedies and these like very, very crass plays for sentimentality. And it's if that were geared towards women and it's, I almost found it insulting, mm -hmm. you know, where it's just like, I want something more from a film than just to like ball my eyes out or to believe this stupid, like crass love story. But and and it's also, I mean, right. So it's, it's, there's also a lot of shame around crying yeah. I think as a girl you know yeah. like what you know what crying says about you and yeah. when you do it and when you're allowed to do it and when you're not allowed to do it yeah um, absolutely yeah and and the the, the fetishization I or sort of recently of, of like feminine toughness I think also that that that's sort of where that comes in too where it's like you need to be a strong independent woman and and you can't ever you know there are certain toxic femininity like toxic masculinity maybe it's coming in I don't know let's see if the world will last that long <laughs> for that to become a thing I mean there's also something for me about the way that it consolates with this whole idea of the women's film or, you know, right. a, like a, a weepy, a chick flick, right? Like mm -hmm. what women are supposed to want and supposed to respond to emotionally. Yeah. You know, but there's also, I think, for maybe those of us who identify ourselves against, you know, mainstream models of femininity and mainstream genres, right? There is also shame about perhaps having emotional responses to things that are in bad taste. That's like feels very piquant for me, right? right. That, you know, that takes takes overcoming. This is different, of course, but I recently read this piece about Tori Amos and yeah. like Tori Amos music. You could take this out of the podcast. I'm sorry. I no, 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 no. This. no. <laughs> but, but basically every, every young woman I know who grew up in the nineties loved Tori Amos, yes. loves Tori Amos. And almost every single one of us had to repudiate her when we became mm -hmm. hipsters in college, you know, like we all had to say, no, we no longer like this totally overly emotional music. That's all about like female shame and female excess. Meanwhile, Kate Bush, totally acceptable. Right. Still totally. Cause it's like at this ridiculous heightened level where she's, you know, flying through the air and elite. It's hard. I, I struggle too because it's like I don't want to fall into the trap of I'm not like other girls. I you know fuck those other girls. Those other girls are stupid. Like because that's playing into the patriarchy right. in a different way. Right. Like you know what I mean. So right. it's like it's hard to navigate these things. And so even you know there is so much that I could possibly revisit or that I probably should revisit without that baggage, without position myself against something. But I guess what I'm thinking and, and what I said as we were on our way up here, right, is that I don't think that there's such a thing as getting rid of that baggage and having a unmediated, purely no. authentic emotional experience. I think, right. you know, we come with all this stuff and it affects, you know, our emotional lives in ways that we're conscious and unconscious of. Yeah. But isn't crying shame like dual gendered i mean there, there are like oh, totally four are. things that heterosexual men are allowed to cry at in the universe <laughs> like you know your team winning or a movie about your team winning or <laughs> rudy that car commercial <laughs> where five for fighting plays as the guy watches his daughter grow up and that's like it you know it, like you're so constrained yeah. in what you're permitted to react to in that emotional way yeah of course of course I, I don't know is that is that something that you guys feel like is is as affected how you cry at movies or what you cry at I don't know if it's different for gay men yeah gay men. I mean I don't know I don't I, know that's a hard question I, I really the only reason I ever try to fight tears is because I think it just creates an embarrassing moment for other people. Like I don't mind people seeing me cry, but I'll try to hold it back a little bit because if I just let it all go, it'll just be ugly. To quote Tina Fey, they say, never let them see you cry. I say, let them see you cry. It totally freaks them out. 
<laughs> and it's true. There's nothing worse than seeing somebody cry. Can we just for? I know we're running out of time. Yeah. So for one last thing, because you brought this up very slightly, I would like to talk about the phenomenon of crying on planes. Yes. Because it'll tie a couple things together. One is I always cry at movies on planes, something about the lack of oxygen. Um, and the fact that I think that they maybe choose some of those movies, some of the older films, like the older library films that are on the, on this, in this election, they seem to choose tearjerkers. So there have been many times, one of which was field of dreams, which is in the genre of what you were talking about at the beginning of this mark, which is sports movies, father, son movies. This movie has always made me cry. I find it very moving. It's also a strange movie. It's fantasy is so completely symbolic and metaphorical. It doesn't even work on a narrative level, but it always moves me. But I watched it on a plane not long ago, and I, I, was, I had to hide my face from the person next to me. It was horrible. And mm. I mean, I was on a plane once, and they had on Golden Pond on the plane. That's, it was brutal. See, I think they do that to like pacify you, though, because it's like you're going to get so like cryy and worked up that you're just going to be like, oh, and I had a red wine, too. I'm going to fall asleep. And I won't bother the, 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 stewarded, the stewards and stewardesses on this flight. I always thought it was something about how close the screen is to your face. Oh, that too. Like there's something, I think there's something about that that for me encourages mm. the crying. Yeah, because um, it's like, it's a very intimate thing because mm-hmm. I saw Inside mm-hmm. Out on, on a plane and I knew that it was going to make me cry because like everyone I ever knew cried at this movie. All the straights, all the gays, all the women, everyone just crying. And I got super emotional. And the people next to me, this older couple, were watching Carol very disinterestedly. And I was just like, oh, but so I could just sort of like lean in and get uh, into it more. I have never cried on a plane. And I can't watch movies on a plane because I am terrified to fly. So my job is from seat 38C to keep the plane in the air by (laughs) concentrating really hard for all the rest of you. Thank you, Mark. And also, this is crazy, but I have this weird thing like – if the plane crashes, I don't want to go out watching Ride Along 2. Fair. Like, I, you know, there's there's nothing perfect enough for me to, you know, choose as my possible last movie. So so I, I guess I'm, I'm locked out of this experience. I cried everything on planes. Everything. Everything. I mean, everything. Actually, things that have no emotional, uh, direct emotional appeals whatsoever. Like, I recently cried at the movie Sicario. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I was trying to remember what scene I cried in. I don't even remember. I just cried. I just, I just cried. You just really respect her. You're just like, wow, I she's just really doing. Respected her. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea. That's. I have no idea what you want me to cry recently. I definitely cried during the Hunger Games. Definitely, which I watched on a plane, and then I watched again and cried again. No, but again, I, it's it's against the evil system. I cry. Mm-hmm. I cry about evil system. I just cling to like my copy of the New Yorker and think like get through this boring article on wheat trade and <laughs> soon it will all be over one way or the other. That's such a perfect read of the New Yorker. Uh, so I love the New Yorker. I, I know. I know. Well, <laughs> on that note, let's end it. But before we close, let's go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. I will say, I, I said this in the, the previous week's episode, I've been revisiting some Fulci's because of the doom and gloom I've experienced after the election, and I just decided to embrace and follow that feeling. I saw for the first time The House by the Cemetery. It's not really one of his best, but it still was um, pretty enjoyable, and there's a completely unnecessary Henry James quote at the end. The effects are really excellent. Again, it's sort of that, you know, certain parts of it are very well composed and very well shot. And then other times there's just this bizarre sloppiness. And it's just such a strange gothic horror. And I'm glad I saw it. I finally saw, and I say finally, even though it hasn't come out yet, but I've been hearing about it for so long. I saw I Am Not Your Negro, Uh, Raul Peck's movie, which is extraordinary. It's a documentary about James Baldwin, or rather the 30-page unfinished manuscript he wrote about that he was going to finish and write about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evers. As an essay film, it takes his words and then creates beautiful poetic images from them. And it is such an important film right now. And, and I know that's going to become the cliche of that and many other films being released in this moment. But 
it's a very different film, even when it showed at the New York Film Festival in September, than it is going to be when it is released post-election, because everything that's being said in that film just feels much more urgent. This is the, yeah. he towards the end of the film. There's a direct, almost into the camera address from a James Baldwin interview from TV from the '60s, I think, on the Dick Cavett show, where he says, "You know, the race problem in America is not the race problem; it is America. It's the it's the story of America. It's the problem of America. And yeah. if we don't deal with this, then." There is no America. Right. And it's, it's an incredibly moving film, and people will be talking about it. Well, I know I'm extremely late to the party here, and this has been discussed on film comment podcasts um, a, a plenty, but I did recently see Moonlight in the theaters and oh, okay. loved it and was very moved by it and definitely cried and also had a really interesting experience, actually, in paying attention to how different people were responding to the film in the theater. I found a very interesting experience. I felt like people were watching this movie with, with, with more attention, but also with more individualized responses than I'd experienced in a movie theater in a really long time where it really felt like the energy of the of the theater was with the film and responding to a film in in a in an unusually sort of piquant way. And so I I, I thought that was really interesting. A movie that's out in theaters right now is also coincidentally a movie that made me cry probably more than any movie this year, which is uh, the documentary Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, which is a documentary about the making of Stephen Sondheim's musical Merrily We Roll Along in 1981, which had a cast full of 16 to 25-year-olds and is a beautiful musical that flopped really, really hard uh, upon its opening and only ran for like two weeks. So... This movie, which revisits that show, including with vintage behind-the-scenes footage of its casting and creation, through the eyes of many of the actors who participated in it, is for me this incredibly moving story of the thrill of having your dream come true and creating art, the incredible disappointment of having it all crash around you. And also, what really profoundly moved me was this story of going from your 20s to your 30s to your 40s to your 50s. Some of these actors uh, went on to really good careers. Uh, Some of them went on to okay careers. Many of them left the business altogether. To see them looking back at their earlier selves and talking about what that experience meant to them and did to them, which is not all positive, it was like the best theater documentary I've ever seen combined with what I really, really love about Michael Apted's 7-Up series. So I, I cannot recommend this movie uh, highly enough. It wrecked me in the best way. Well, art is always about making yourself vulnerable. So um, thank you all for coming. This was excellent. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.